Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. We mentioned quite recently that an Alphonse Bertillon episode was coming, and in a shocking turn of events, here it is with very little delay. Yes. Unlike so often when it's like four years later. (laughs) If you have noticed that there is also a Bertillon episode in the archives. Yes, that's true. Uh, This one is is not exactly an update. It's got a much different focus than that one. That talks a lot about his police work and some of the ways he innovated, which we don't talk about much in this one beyond some of the, the key elements of the Bertillon system. But I really wanted to look at his life story a little bit more and who he was as a person. So that's why we are revisiting Alphonse Bertillon. Uh, Bertillon is a man who definitely is a mix of really positive achievements and traits and also a whole lot of really problematic issues. He's a very complex human. Bertillon developed a system of identification via body measurements that was designed to identify whether crime suspects had an existing criminal history. His system worked, sort of, Uh, but his contributions to police work have kind of been occluded by some terrible missteps he made in his career after that. Uh, I'm just going to tell you up front, this is one of those episodes where there are a lot of parentheticals where we just have to point out that there is a threat of racism through his entire story. Um... (laughs) I don't want to detract from it by jokingly saying you're going to get a lot of this, but just brace for it. It's one of those things we're just acknowledging because in a lot of cases it doesn't do any good to really dig into it and go, here's how this was racist. Mm -hmm. One thing, the very title of it, you will know, is super racist. So know that going in as we examine Alphonse Bertillon. Alphonse Bertillon was born April 23rd, 1853, in Paris, France, and he came from a family of innovators. His grandfather, Jean-Baptiste Bertillon, served in the military under Napoleon Bonaparte before becoming a chemist. 
In that role, he made improvements to the distillation process and invented a sugar purification method. Jean-Baptiste also invested in one of the first gas works in Paris, helping to usher in the age of the literal city of lights. Alphonse's father, Louis-Adolphe Bertillon, studied medicine at the Sorbonne, although his true passion was engineering, and he sort of combined the two when he realized he could measure humans and use that data to compile statistical tables. Some of these tables were inherently racist. Louis-Adolphe eventually became France's head of vital statistics, and Alphonse's brother Jacques Bertillon followed their father in that role. Alphonse's mother was Zoé Guillard Bertillon, who had married Louis-Adolphe in 1850. According to a biography written in the 1950s, Zoé had wanted to name their second son Alfred. But Louis Adolphe had forgotten the name they had chosen when he went to register the birth and so incorrectly went with Alphonse. That is uh, really quite a charming story in that biography where she's just like, okay, fine. Like, uh, they're just really happy about their new baby who apparently screamed a lot. When Alphonse was just a few months old, the Bertillons moved away from Paris to Montmorency, about 10 miles or 17 kilometers north. And this move was precipitated by a growing distrust of the science community in Paris at the time. As scientific discoveries moved the populace forward, the people behind them were sometimes seen as causing unrest. Uh, But this move was very good for the family for other reasons, because being in the country seemed to help Alphonse, who had been kind of sickly from the time he was born, gain a degree of health and level out a little bit in terms of, like, his child development. The family stayed at Montmorency for three years, and they moved back to Paris in 1856, settling in on the Rue de Bruxelles. Alphonse sounds like a scamp as a kid. He was a curious child, but not really interested in structured learning. When he struggled in school, his parents hired a tutor for him, but he was pretty merciless with this tutor, would hide his glasses and play tricks on him. Because he had been sickly as a small child and still had some health issues, he was entirely willing to exploit that to just get out of work. When Alphonse was 11, he was sent to a boarding school that specialized in difficult students. He was there for a semester before the Bertillon family received a letter that basically said no amount of money was worth dealing with Alphonse As a scholar, he excelled in botany and natural history, but he just did not have any interest in other subjects. At the same time the family was trying to decide what to do with their precocious 13-year-old, Zoe Bertillon became gravely ill. Her exact illness is unknown. It's been theorized that she may have had some sort of bacterial infection that led to sepsis. Alphonse, his older brother Jacques, and their younger brother Georges attended her deathbed, and Alphonse is said to have fainted in the moment that she died. As the family was mourning, Louis-Adolphe had taken the two younger boys to Ornelacousse-le-Bain near France's border with Andorra. It was a place that he and Zoe had spent time when they were first married. And there, Alphonse got some tutoring from his father, who realized that his middle child mostly just needed to be challenged by education to engage with it. This is something, of course, that is recognized as part of a person's learning profile now, but in the mid-19th century, it was often mischaracterized as laziness or a lack of focus. 
I think folks still struggle with being branded lazy when that's not really what's going on today. But to be clear, Alphonse was stubborn about the whole idea of studying things he did not have a natural interest in. And this recognition of Alphonse's need for stimulus did not result in him becoming a good student or having courses tailored to him. Perhaps more than anything else, though, this period brought Alphonse and his father much closer. Before her death, Zoe had been the parent that Alphonse had been close to. But Alphonse did have to go back to school, and he was eventually enrolled at the Imperial Lycée at Versailles. This initially seemed like it might be a good fit, but all of the same problems arose once the newness of that situation had worn off. He not only didn't work on his studies, he actively worked with some of his friends to disrupt class. Eventually, the Imperial Lycée sent Louis-Adolphe Bertillon a letter very similar to the one that he had received from the previous school. They had been able to deal with his behavior until an incident in which Alphonse, who, this sounds wild to me, had been secretly making hot chocolate in his desk with a spirit lamp for himself and his friends, started a fire. But then when he was confronted about it with literal smoke coming out of his desk, instead of opening the desk and revealing what had gone on, he hit his teacher over the head with a book. That ended his formal education. But this happened just as the Franco-Prussian War began, so it's also possible his education would have been put on hold then anyway. He managed, how it is unclear, to take and pass the baccalaureate examination in science and literature on his own a couple of years later at the age of 20. Alphonse wanted to sort of bask in that accomplishment, but his father wanted him to get a job. So much so that Louis Adolphe found one for him as a junior bank clerk. This went about as well as you might think. (laughs) Young person being pushed into a job by their parent. Uh, it's unclear exactly how this posting ended for Alphonse. It was a short-lived situation, though. Next, Alphonse was sent to England with the hope that some time abroad would mature him. And he found London to be a bit alienating. He noticed immediately that people stared at him just when he was walking around. And one of his friends, who was also French but living in London, explained that it was because he dressed like a Parisian and that set him apart from the rest of London. He wanted to revamp his wardrobe to try to blend in better, but Louis Adolphe refused to send him money for that. So the normally pretty aimless Adolphe Bertillon suddenly was hunting for jobs, and he landed a position teaching French for very low pay at a collegiate school. This was really challenging because he didn't really speak English much at all at this point. But he did manage. He next moved to a position as a private tutor, and he started to suggest to his family that maybe after he was done in London, he would go to university in England or in Scotland. But his father did not want to spend the money to enroll him in a university, given his education history. Alphonse moved on to another job teaching French in London until he was recalled to his home country for military service in the ongoing Franco-Prussian War. In 1875, he became part of the 139th Regiment stationed in Rouen, which is right in between Vichy and Lyon. He was moved at some point from an infantry to a clerical role and also decided that when he was done, he would go to medical school. So he started to use his downtime in the service to study medical texts. He became fascinated specifically with the skeleton 
In a biography written in 1956, author Henry T.F. Rhodes states that even at this early point, Bertillon was, quote, devoted to and almost obsessed with a specialized problem. This was the dimensions of the human skeleton. That fascination with the human skeleton would feed into the way that Bertillon eventually made a name for himself. But before we get to that, we'll pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In Season 1, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. After his military service, Bertillon returned to Paris, and while deciding what his next move would be, because it turned out he didn't end up wanting to go to medical school, he got typhoid fever, and that delayed any plans that he may have had in mind. But he may have also been starting to panic a little at how far behind his brothers and friends he was in terms of a career. So he asked his father to help him again. 
Alphonse was able to get a job working for the police department of Paris as a records clerk with the help of his father. He started in that job on March 15th of 1879, and the 25-year-old Bertillon found that he had walked into a mess of disorganized records. One of the biggest problems is hard to imagine happening today. Police in France and a lot of other parts of the world had a hard time knowing if somebody who was brought in on an arrest or even sentenced to jail time, had a prior criminal record. There were forms that were filled out every time, but a combination of corruption, sloppy practices, and lying on the part of detainees meant that those forms were largely meaningless. A lot of this just wound up coming down to whether a police officer remembered a suspect from a previous offense. Adding to that, everybody seemed to include their own set of information on any intake documents, and there wasn't a set list of criteria that was supposed to be used. Before the 1830s, it had been standard practice in France to brand criminals. So it was easy to see if somebody had been arrested before. That was finally recognized as inhumane and stopped. And uh, nothing had really been developed to identify repeat offenders in place of this branding. And so this is, you know, 40-some years later that they're still having all of these problems after the branding was outlawed, thank goodness. And Alphonse Bertillon decided that he would just restructure the whole system. (laughs) And on October 1st, 1879, exactly 200 days from the day he began the job, Bertillon submitted a report to his boss, Monsieur Andrieux, the prefect of police. This was a preliminary version of the system that he would eventually develop, but he had devised a way to uniquely identify people in a large group through a systematic series of measurements of their bodies. Bertillon had figured out a way to plug those measurements into formulas that could sort people into various groupings of similarities and then make that data accessible and searchable in a way that a person could process a newly arrested suspect and then check pretty easily to see if that person had a prior record. For a very simplified example, Bertillon had made an initial sorting of all the records by head measurements. So you would need to measure the person in question and then see if you needed to look in the cards that were small, medium, or large. And so that already eliminated two-thirds of the possible options. The remaining one-third would then be separated in a similar way by the next measurement and so on. And then so on again. So you might arrive at kind of a subdivision of people who had the same forearm length from elbow crease to wrist all grouped together. There would be a card for each of those people in a set that matched those measurements. And a police officer would use that measurement to find the card set and then sift through just a couple of dozen cards, not all the cards, to see if the same suspect had been previously booked or incarcerated. I feel like this is sort of a a dichotomous key for humans, if anybody remembers that from, (laughs) like, biology class. Additional measurements could be searched the same way to cross-reference and verify the identity of the person at hand. The entire system was predicated on Bertillon's realization that no two people would have all identical measurements. Uh, I will say this sounds maybe fiddly. (laughs) But it sounded completely cockamamie to Prefect Andrew. Also that no two people having all identical measurements did come back to bite him. We'll get to that. 
Versian was really disappointed that his superior did not see the functionality of this system, so he decided he would further refine it over the next six weeks, and then he submitted an updated version of the report, hoping that this time it would convince Andrea of its value. This time, he was told very clearly that the police had an established record-keeping method and it was fine. And in response, Alphonse Bertillon told his superior that the system was actually a mess and of little practical use. It probably went over really well. Uh, But because he was a new clerk who had no prior experience in the field, he was told to simply drop it. And because his father had been the one to get him that job, Louis-Adolphe Bertillon got another letter about his son. This one suggesting not that he was unfocused or high-spirited, like the ones he had received when Alphonse was in school. This one suggested pretty um, bluntly and kind of grossly that there might be something actually wrong with Alphonse mentally. Like, maybe your kid should get treatment. Uh, But once Alphonse showed his father what he had been working on, the elder Bertillon totally understood it, and he had some insights into why other people might not initially. This combination of statistics with physiological analysis had never been used in quite this way. It was complex, but it did really make it possible to find existing information about a person if they were in the records. And to build up his database of cards, which got pretty large, Bertillon had visited prisons and took measurements of inmates, as well as taking the measure of family, friends, and associates. So he had a pretty big data set that he could show, hey, look, this works. This use of anthropometry, not just the measuring of the human body, but the study of those measurements, was not a new concept. It's still used for a variety of applications today. It is a study that has a lot of problematic issues in its history because often the data collected had been used to try to make connections about race and behavior The pseudosciences of phrenology and physiognomy are based on it, and there have been many, many, many anthropologists over the years who have announced incorrect, generalized conclusions about groups of people using anthropometry as their evidence. Today, this is mostly used for things like designing seats for cars and airplanes, for things like clothing size for manufacture. But in the 1880s, Bertillon was not trying to use interpretive analysis to suggest that people with measurement X were more likely to commit a certain type of crime, although the system did get used that way by some police departments. We have talked about that on the show recently. He was just trying to show that no two people would have the exact same data set and that if you set up a system correctly, you could use their unique profile to search for them in a big system. This also has some problems, which we'll talk about in a bit. They're different problems, though, than trying to say that you can tell whether somebody is a criminal by what their head is like. Yeah, and he even said as much in an interview with prior podcast subject Ida Tarbell at one point, like, no, 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 that's not what this is for. You cannot make the connection that, like, a man with blue eyes will do X, Y, or Z. Like, This is literally just to find people, although he was also aware that people were going to make those jumps. And although Alphonse's organizational system was not getting any recognition at work, with his father's encouragement, he continued to refine it on his own time. He had a growing collection of measuring tools, and he made continuously updated records of himself and other volunteers. 
The list of measurements eventually included the length and width of the head, the length of the middle finger, the length of the left foot, and the length of the forearm from elbow to the end of the middle finger. There were also notes recorded of body shape, any scars, tattoos, or other unique identifiers, eye color, hair color, and it's listed as like hair quality. It sort of comes down to like hair texture and like, is it thick? Is it thin? Is it curly? Is it not? He also included a fairly new technology, which was photography. We've talked about the history of photography many times on the show before, so this is not really new information. The daguerreotype was introduced in 1839, four decades before this work by Bertillon. And in those four decades, it had progressed considerably. It still was pretty new, though. The first mass market camera was still about 10 years away. And there was already photography in use in police precincts, but it wasn't really commonplace. Bertillon felt that his measurement system would be even more useful if he could attach standardized photos to the records. He established measured distances from the chair that the subject was seated in to the camera and the full front and full side angles they would be photographed from. This system, known as portrait parlé, is considered the invention of the mugshot. If you've ever seen old mugshots from Europe in particular, in which there were what looked like rulers and calipers and things like that to position the subject's head, that's because they're using the Bertillonage system or a variation of it. He had, in the meantime, not for this work, gotten a promotion from being a junior clerk. But he was still kind of viewed as a pain in the neck and an outsider within his department. He did his job and was apparently pretty good in terms of work ethic, but he did not really make any friends at the police department. But he was befriended by a young woman by chance when crossing the street one day. She asked him if he would help her cross because she was nearsighted and she was afraid of traffic. And he obliged, and once they had crossed, they introduced themselves to one another. Her name was Amélie Notar, and she had recently moved to Paris from Austria. When she mentioned she earned a living giving German lessons, Alphonse said he had always wanted to learn German. That was a complete lie. He hated that subject in school. As he was feeling stagnant in his job, Bertillon wrote a book to occupy himself during his time. And this book was titled Les Races Sauvages, or The Savage Races. Uh, Holly didn't find a lot of information on this book's specific contents, but it's usually dismissed as a messy, poorly researched title that was more of Bertillon's musing on things he didn't have a lot of exposure to than on any kind of actual scientific examination of anything Also, based on its title, seems like it must have been incredibly racist. This book did not do well, but he had dictated it to Amélie, and the two of them had become very close, and soon she was taking notes for him regularly. I did find, I should say, French-language versions of it, and my French is okay, but not really good enough to plow through a book of pseudo-information about, Mm -hmm. like, fake scientific assertions, so... Uh, just if anybody's like, I found this book, well, yeah, but not an English language version. For good reason, I imagine. Not long, though, after the publication of this book, his boss, Andrea, retired. And the new prefect, whose name was Camcas, had heard of Bertillon's project, and unlike his predecessor, he was really interested in it. And he gave Bertillon a chance to prove that this system would work. 
He had three months to do it with the help of two assigned clerks, and he had to find at least one repeat offender in the system through his method. It took some time, but eventually he did manage to match a newly arrested man with a previous visit to the Paris Police Department. The timing of that first match in February 1883 was unfortunately overshadowed by the death of Alphonse's father, Louis Adolphe. Despite that loss, 1883 was pivotal for Bertillon in more positive ways. He built on that first success by identifying more and more recidivists in the police records, and he proposed to and married Amélie, who had been an important part of his efforts. She's said to have compiled more than 7,000 of the cards used for the system. She had, by all accounts, beautiful, easily legible writing, so she really made the whole system easier for users. By the end of 1883, Bertillon had identified 49 duplicate offenders in the Parisian Police Bureau records. By the end of 1884, Bertillon's process had identified 241 repeat offenders. This was all proof enough for his prefect to start instituting the system officially. Bertillon was tasked with getting a department up and running, and police staff from other countries soon were visiting Paris to learn this system and bring it back to their own offices. And Bertillon had some very high-profile successes. His system was used to identify an anarchist who was plotting a bombing, as well as a man who had faked his own death and then continued to commit crimes. An 1886 article ran in papers around the U.S. titled Identifying Prisoners, and it announced the new system as a triumph. It read in part, quote, the latest method of identifying prisoners, which has been introduced into France by Monsieur Alphonse Bertillon, and which is now successfully practiced not only in the chief French prisons, but in Russia and Japan as well, is the exact measurement of the prisoner on his arrival at the jail. A photograph is also immediately taken, and by these means, the many mistakes which have been made by a trusting photographer only are avoided. In 1888, France had established its Bureau of Identification with Alphonse Bertillon as its director. Bertillon's career was clearly taking off, but his arrogance was about to trip him up. We'll talk about his involvement in the Dreyfus Affair after we hear from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History Class going. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In Season 1, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. 
At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. As use of bertillonage began to spread, there were naturally detractors. One of the biggest early criticisms was simply disbelief that there couldn't be duplicate people within the system. In a statement in 1893, Bertillon said, quote, the ideal card of the average man, more exactly than Francais Banal, that is to say an individual in whom all the measurements correspond exactly to the average dimension, quite simply does not exist. It is never found, even in the most central section of my cabinets. There are, of course, cards which approach this ideal configuration, but the related measures never approached each other so closely that they can be confused. That assertion would be proven wrong. There were other issues with the system, and we're going to get to them in a moment. But here's the thing. Bertillon was stubborn when it came to criticism. He was terrible at hearing anybody criticize his work, and he always insisted that the critic was the one in the wrong. Bertillon's arrogance caused a great deal of harm when he was asked to consult on the case of Captain Alfred Dreyfus, which we've covered on the show as a two-parter. The short version, Dreyfus was tried for selling military secrets to Germany in 1894. A key piece of evidence in this trial was a handwritten document which contained information about state secrets and their sale. And Bertillon was asked to analyze the handwriting. Now, he was not a handwriting expert, but his reputation had become so well-known for his police work that people thought he was the obvious choice. 
In the six years since the Bureau of Identification had been formed, he had developed other means of using his mathematical formulas to uh, measure both people and evidence. And he thought he could similarly use it to analyze handwriting. And this was disastrous. Bertillon, undoubtedly biased by anti-Semitism, which was an enormous problem in France at the time, determined that Dreyfus, who was Jewish, had forged his own handwriting in an effort to conceal his involvement in this traitorous sale of state secrets. He explained to the court at the trial that Dreyfus had formed the letters using a square grid as the first disguise pass and then worked from that version to make a bad copy of his own writing. Bertillon may have believed that he had figured out a criminal mastermind's method, but what he really did was get a totally innocent man exiled to Devil's Island uh, and spark an enormous cultural rift and giant anti-Semitic backlash in France. But even when new evidence came to light indicating that the real traitor was Ferdinand Walsen Esterhazy, including a confession, and not Dreyfus, Bertillon continued to vehemently assert that Dreyfus had to be the guilty party. His testimony during Dreyfus's second trial was described this way by a member of the press. Quote, Now and again, Monsieur Bertillon's voice rose in hateful shrieks. There were interludes when he clenched his fist and struck the bar, swearing that Dreyfus was the traitor. The voice rang out with passion and excitement. You beheld in him the man vain unto madness with confidence in his atrocious fantasies. He was at last taking his revenge for all the insults of those who had called him a fit subject for an asylum of the insane. Bertillon never conceded that he had been wrong in this matter, even after real handwriting experts had proven his conclusions and his methods false, and he proclaimed this correctness even to his deathbed. While this scandal caused some damage to his reputation as a handwriting expert and his work had contributed in a major way to a very real crisis, the family cost was greater. Alphonse's brother Jacques, also a well-respected statistician, was married to Polish physician Caroline Schultz. Caroline was Jewish, and Jacques was so upset by Alphonse Bertillon's insistence that Alfred Dreyfus must be guilty that these two brothers had a massive falling out and they did not speak for years. Over time, the Bersionage method was recognized as having problems. From the very beginning of it being put to practical use in police departments around the world, its flaws became more and more apparent. For one thing, there were a lot of devices that needed to be acquired and then maintained and constantly calibrated for measuring. For another, there was significant training needed for implementation. Any clerk or officer who was going to use those many devices and tools needed fairly advanced instructions on how to use them, and different users would often return different measurements of the same subject. Sometimes the same user would return different measurements on the same subject if they took a second set. Bertillon, as he always did, denied all of this, stating that, quote, anyone who is not an imbecile could learn to measure in five minutes and never forget the process. 
this system also did not really account for things like the way a person's body changes as it ages. So as a subject aged, it was less and less likely that they would match up with a Bertillon card from their younger years. Additionally, incidents started to pop up where two different people were identified as the same person, something that Bertillon had insisted was not possible. By the end of the 19th century, as fingerprinting started to be adopted by many law enforcement offices, the Bertillon system, which had briefly been hailed as a revolutionary tool, started to fall out of favor. Did not take long after its introduction. Bertillon has, had initially rallied against the use of fingerprints, although over time, they started to be included with Bertillon cards in police files. The mugshot, however, with its standard front and profile images, that's endured. Despite the scandal of the Dreyfus affair, Bertillon continued to be given awards for his work in criminology. And he continued in his work until in 1913, he began to experience the sensation of being extremely cold at all times. He could not seem to get warm, no matter what amount of heat he was exposed to, and he shivered constantly. He was also starting to have trouble with his eyesight. After he was diagnosed with pernicious anemia, his younger brother Georges donated blood for a transfusion. And initially this helped a great deal, but the effects wore off and he needed a second and then a third transfusion. And Georges was the donator on all of it, so it was taking a toll on him as well. He kept working for months as this was going on, and there's no denying that he was getting weaker and weaker In early 1914, he was nominated for the Légion d'honneur Officer's Rosette, but people were reluctant to give him this award unless he met one condition. An emissary was sent to Bertillon's home, where at this point he was having to stay in bed, and told him that he would receive this award only if he retracted his assertion that Dreyfus had written the document known as the Bordreau, which had been a key component of that case. Bertillon reportedly yelled no at the visitor repeatedly. That was the end of that. On February 13, 1914, Alphonse Bertillon fell into a coma. He died at 11 p.m. and was buried at Père Lachaise Cemetery. In the September 1915 edition of the Journal of the American Institute of Criminal Law and Criminology, lawyer and author Raymond B. Fosdick wrote, quote, In the death of Alphonse Bertillon in February 1914, the anthropometric method of identification probably suffered its final blow. For a decade, his prestige and personality were the only supports of a system that, in Europe at least, had been fast losing ground. Persistently, even stubbornly, he endeavored to save the method which was the product of his genius and which bore his name, but he lived to see it discarded in nearly every country in Europe except his own. And even in France, now that the weight of his influence and his really compelling personality are gone, it is doubtful whether his system of identification will be continued. One of the issues that arises when looking at Bertillon's life is that there are some big gaps in the information One cause was that his wife, Amelie, and her grief destroyed a lot of his papers after he died. As a consequence, we really don't know a whole lot about his personal thoughts on a lot of the events that took place during his life. His actions and behaviors, once he started on the system that would be the basis of his life's work, show a man that was driven by a pursuit of the truth, but also distracted from that truth by hubris. 
Perhaps the best summation of the complicated Bertillon was written by Richard Fairbrother and Julian Champkin in 2014 for the periodical Significance, in which they said he was, quote, passionate about measuring everything that could be measured and some things that could not really be measured besides. <sighs> Alphonse Bertillon. You are a quandary. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, I will talk so much about the various ways he is discussed in our behind the scenes on Friday. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, I want to talk to you about Stroganoff. <laughs> this is from our listener, Chelsea, who writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, I want to begin by thanking you both for such a wonderful podcast. I've been a listener since the beginning, and I have loved listening to the podcast mature and grow over time with the two of you making it your own. You've done such a phenomenal job of tackling difficult and interesting topics, and I always can't wait to hear what's next. This is a little late because I listen exclusively when driving, so I'm always a bit behind. Sidebar, you never have to apologize. We suffer the same problems when we're going about our lives. Uh, We fall behind on the things we love all the time. Chelsea continues, I just listened to your Oops All Noodles episode, and I was excited that you were covering beef stroganoff. My husband and I have had a long-standing disagreement about how to make stroganoff going back to the beginning of our marriage. He does the majority of the cooking since he's better at it, but stroganoff is something that I feel confident about. The first time I made it, he couldn't believe I was adding tomato paste and leaving out the mushrooms because I don't like them. He thought that was absolutely ridiculous because his recipe uses paprika instead. He claimed that adding tomato paste and emitting mushrooms changed the intent of the dish. I said this was how I learned to make it and that I would stick with what I know. This has become such an inside joke between us that now, years later, when we're meal planning for the week, if stroganoff is suggested, it becomes an entire family discussion about are we making mom stroganoff or dad stroganoff, complete with a lot of knowing glances and the kids taking sides. Imagine my delight when you said that tomato paste was added as an ingredient in the early 1900s. It was so great that I shouted, ha, while driving. I was in the middle of dropping one kid at preschool and driving to volunteer at the other kid's school, but I had just enough time to swing by home and interrupt my husband working in his home office with a triumphant, I was right. (laughs) I love this so much. Once he understood what I was talking about, he asked me to cite my sources. He knew he couldn't argue with me when I told him I heard it from you because he was the one who originally insisted I listen to the podcast. He did want to make it known that he was also right about the mushrooms. Thank you for always adding knowledge and delight to my drive. I've attached pictures of our dog, Carlton. He is 12 and has always been a crabby old man dog who just wants to lie in the sun or be under a pile of blankets. Cheers, Chelsea. Okay, first of all, Carlton is hilarious and adorable. I love a grumpy dog. They're, he's so cute. I want to mm-hmm. scoop him up and kiss him, and he'd be like, please do not. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's the thing that I discovered, too, when doing the stroganoff research is that there are a lot of different versions Mm-hmm. because it propagated throughout the world and at different regions and different people created their own kind. So in my opinion, there's no wrong kind of stroganoff ever. I'm not a tomato paste person, but if you are and you love that, awesome. I'm like heavy on the sour cream and mushrooms person on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm just glad that everybody is cooking delicious things and that it is something that they are good-naturedly um, poking fun at each other about and not an actual 
argument. If you would like to write to us about the way you make stroganoff or any other dish or anything else we've talked about on the show, you can do that at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you haven't yet subscribed, you can do that on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.